Hey, Rufus, have you actually taken the Hull Tactical Timing the Market quiz? Wait, there's a quiz? I want to take there it. There is a quiz. There is a quiz. I took it I took it yesterday, and I did pretty well. But if you guys want to go take it, it's at hulltactical.com. And, and this episode of Bet the Process is brought to you by Hull Tactical, which is an ETF using market timing to beat the market. And so ultimately... You know, it, it's pretty cool to like think about some of the principles of, that are used because it's super academic in how they look at it. Um, and I, I found it interesting. So if you haven't done it, Rufus, I highly encourage you to do well, it. Well, you know, and I had a conversation with Blair Hull last week and we were talking about which languages we code in. I was I was super impressed. Nice. And what languages does he code in? R and Python. That's, that's pretty standard these days for I anyone know. doing really good analytical work. I'm Go 37 ahead, years old and I, I still use languages that were around a long, long, long time before. So Cobalt? I'm impressed. Cobalt? 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 I don't Anyways, know what that is. I'm not that old. On this week's Bet the Process podcast, we actually have a very special guest, a guest that's near and dear to my heart. We have Ben Mesrick coming on to talk a little bit about his work, his current work, and um, some of the controversies that are happening right now in the journalism world. And we also talk a lot about what truth is and whether you can recall the past and whatnot. And uh, we talk a little bit about what Rufus would be doing in his spare time if he had infinite time to try to find new edges in sports. So with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a out with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. Welcome to another episode of the Bet the Process podcast where Rufus is You've been like all over the place, right? You went to Vegas, you came back to New York. Now you're back in New York. That, yes. Yeah, I mean, two, two, two different places. It's you incredible. Know, I mean, it, I don't know. You're very sedentary usually. Not really. Oh, yeah, very. Very sedentary. I never uh, move around. No travel. I'm gearing up for more travel, actually. Um, I'm going to go down to Baltimore for the Orioles game. I bought Orioles tickets for Saturday and Sunday with, with Tom, my brother. And then Love Tom, tell Tom I, I said to, hi. I, I I will. You know, if the Rangers win this afternoon, then I can go ahead and book a flight to Texas for like I guess after that, because the Orioles will be playing the Rangers if the Rangers beat the Rays. So I'm I'm gearing up for like a, a fun few weeks, hopefully. I mean, we should probably just jump into our timing the market segment, which is brought to you by Hall Tactical, which is an ETF that uses the best of the high frequency trading principles to give retail investors, the idea of uh, timing the market. So I have a real, like, this is like a real issue. So this morning, so last night I was looking at the the lines and talking to a guy I work with on the baseball stuff. And he said, we're, we're going to be on Texas tomorrow. You know, they, but we should probably wait because, you know, people are going to probably come in and think it's an elimination game and you're going to get more value on Texas as time goes on, as people start to bet you know, Tampa Bay because it's an elimination game. And I think it was like in the plus 135 range. And then this morning I woke up, it was plus 141. I was like, oh, I should probably bet this now. Like this is the right thing. Maybe, maybe it'll go up more. And then Barry Horse releases Texas at plus 140. 
and it gets crushed all the way down to plus 128. Our price on this is plus 133, so it's out of range. And this is like this quintessential timing the market thing because I was getting greedy on pennies. Like there, there's no, there's probably nothing that's going to happen that's going to make that go up to like plus 150. And the downside of Berry Horse releasing it, putting it out of range and not actually ever playing it is is an issue. So do you think that like, from my perspective, like in you as a strong better, like what, what Rufus? I, I have the odd screen open and literally it just jumped to plus 139 from plus 20, 129 at bookmaker. Oh, real time, real time. Real time. There we real go. Time. It's 12.42 PM Eastern time. So Wednesday. the lesson behind this is just wait for your right price, bet it at the right price. Don't get greedy. Don't don't over optimize for pennies. Just just do it. Yeah, now you missed it. It's plus one thirty five now. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on. So, Rufus, generally, how has football been going? Um, how is it? You is the is the what are you gonna do with NFL in terms of like Massey Peabody and everything like that going forward? Do you have that's plans? A, that's a good question because I've. I've made no secret that I haven't really focused on football nearly as much this year as in past years. So it's, I'm kind of in this, in this in-between zone that you don't really want to be in where I feel like I doing enough that I should be betting some, but not enough that I feel like a ton of confidence in it, you know? Yeah. Like it, it basically I haven't rejiggered stuff on models um, in quite some time. And so we're, we're, we're not really betting much on NFL sides like full game stuff we are we are betting college football stuff but not we're, we're only kind of taking higher edges and so it's been a trying start to the season i'll be honest is Especially is there is the, is the reason that you're doing that because the edges aren't there or because you just worry that there are things that are not in your model and when you're off market that you're you're just not you know what I mean? Like, like where, where is the reluctancy coming from in terms of firing on some of this stuff? So I'll say for NFL, we, it's part of, it's like the fact that we have a new data source also. And so I feel like there's, there's been some headaches with that, but I think it's basically the fact that the model we're using is, has not been really redone coefficients haven't been redone in, in a number of years. And so it also is mostly, as you know, a team-based model and we're not using new data. We're not using player tracking data. So there's only so much you can do with that. And when you're betting, if you're at an information disadvantage, if there's information out there that you're not using, that puts you at a disadvantage overall. And, and so I, I don't think my edges are going to be that, that large. Um, I've done some testing on basically how much power the Massey Peabody stuff had the last few years. And it's kind of varied widely by year. It's against the closing lines. Um, I think we showed something like we need to regress 85% back to the market for college football the last few years. Um, but that's not even statistically significant in terms of like 15% uh, or the 15% power we have. But before that, it was much higher. And so I, I think one reason for that is college football has changed. We've talked about this in the past with the the transfer portal and the fact that athletes, student athletes don't have to sit out a year. Now you have entire rosters being turned over like with Colorado this year. And I think Texas state a good amount as well. And so I'm not handling that in a way that's as good as I would like to. And so I'm basically just being a little more conservative with things. And I, at, at some point I would like to kind of 
really dive deep and build the model back to what it was, you know, at a point where I felt a lot of confidence in it um, because I, I had the best information or better information, I guess, relative to what the market had. If you had infinite amount of time, which is a real exercise, what, what, what would you do to try to like feel more confident about either college or NFL or where would you spend your time? I guess I'd, bu I'd build a player level model uh, on the well, college side. I built some sort of mixture, a mixed thing. Like first of all, I need, I'd get, I would have a beautiful database linking the players with recruiting with, um, I mean, basically injuries, the, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem is that you have like these, it, it's a huge nightmare because the, players have different ideas and different like from rivals and and from the data source we use for for our pvp and so it's very you know getting all of that merged in properly is is not the easiest thing in the world where would you try to spend time outside of the core sports that you do would, would there be one that you'd be like again like if you have, this is infinite amount of time so you have this ability to say like, oh, I really have always wanted to attack X sport right now and see if there's edges and go after that. I mean, maybe I'd try a new sport like cricket. I don't know. Is Are the markets in cricket pretty liquid for betting? They're huge. They're, they're very, very large. Really? But I, I'd have to understand the rules first. <laughs> well, you have, infinite, you have infinite amount of time, so I think you're okay. I've always found tennis interesting, but when I, when I looked at modeling it, 12 years ago, I think it was, I didn't, the data, or maybe 11 years ago, the data I had, I didn't think I could do en enough with that. Just not, not having point by point data, just because in tennis players are not giving the same effort every play. Like we kind of assume like for baseball, that these players are robots and they're trying equally hard every single at bat. Whereas in tennis, a good example is back in the day, you know, Pete Sampras, he got up a break against a lesser opponent. He's uh, when he's returning serve, he's just going to be going for quick winners and quick points because he is, wants to save his energy for his serve. And so, I mean, you have players that are not optimizing for every point they're optimizing for, and not even necessarily every match in terms of like winning the match um, by the most comfortable margin, but they're, they're optimizing for winning the tournament in a lot of cases. So I think if I had better data on tennis, I think it would be really interesting. I, th I think it's, the the whole sort of surface effect um is interesting and i kind of am familiar with building things um and i tried to build something for tennis with the data i had but with better data i think it would be it would probably be fun to model did you what did you think about the Ryder cup i didn't watch much of it i was not surprised at how it went i i, I didn't bet you know honestly I, I was out. I mean, we Vegas. talked about it. And we Vegas. thought Europe, I, I had said yeah. Europe was uh, like, yeah, like my numbers showed Europe being value. I, I think I was much, much higher in Europe than I think, like I know data golf put out a forecast and I was, I thought they were way too high on the U S they were not factoring in enough of like the, the location effect there, but I kind of honestly forgot what time it started too. And so <laughs> I, I was out and I was like, wait, Oh shit, it started already. Um, cause we, cause we didn't, we, we didn't simulate out the, um, the matches, the, the four balls and the foursomes, but I did have projections for it. And so uh, I did actually on Sunday or before Sunday simulate out those match play singles of uh, the singles matchups because I'd written something for the match play event in which is going to be discontinued on the PGA tour, but the one that's in Austin every year. And so I was able to find value on like two matchups. That was it really. Did you bet them? Yeah, yeah, and you won. Yeah, we we went one zero oh, and one, 
and I also bet on Europe laying minus a thousand going into the final day. I made it like minus 1470. So I had Hatton over whoever Hatton played. <laughs> I don't even about. remember. Yeah. Hatton. And then I think Lowry over speed. It's kind of, it's kind of sad how Hatton won. I, I turned it on at one point and I was like, man, this is such a fun event to watch. Cause it's like, it is really fun to see like Scheffler made a putt and just got all excited. And I don't think I've ever seen Scheffler get excited about anything. And so, and then it just was like this now, like all the, you know, Xander and Cantlay and money talk. It really just is, it's just sad more than anything. Yeah. Um, Okay. Let's welcome in Ben Mezrick, who is going to be our guest today. Um, and then we'll talk to you guys all again on the other side. We now welcome in Ben Mezrick to the Bet the Process podcast. Ben is uh, an accomplished writer who's written a bunch of really important books. Ben, what was the most important book that you ever wrote? <laughs> I mean, talking to you, Jeff, it's got to be Bringing Down the House, which became the movie 21. Um, it, I mean, important is maybe the wrong word. That's the book that launched my career. And so, of course, uh, you and I have a relationship going back a long way to the beginning for me. Uh, the important book, probably The Social Network, uh, the book was called The Accidental Billionaires, was made into the movie The Social Network, which I think had the most impact culturally of the books I've written. And then currently, my book is the movie Dumb Money which um, has you know, gotten tons of press and critical acclaim and um, is starting or restarting the conversation on the whole meme stock phenomenon and what that means. But if you had to pick one, the most, uh, the biggest book I had was Bringing Down the House about the MIT kids <laughs> or you, um, but the uh, most impactful book was probably the one that became The Social Network. So that's still the biggest book you ever wrote in terms of sales, huh? Absolutely. I mean, Bringing Down the House was just one of those books that you would see in everybody's house that that every kind of college kid, 20-something, bought and still, you know, talks about that book. And then the movie 21, I mean, I don't know, you know, I'm older now and some of the younger people maybe haven't seen it yet, but there was a time period where every single person saw the movie 21. Um so yeah, that was my biggest book in terms of just sheer book sales. Yeah, for sure. Do you ever think about, and this is obviously some something that I'm thinking about as we think about the life that 21 may have afterwards, but what are the, the cultural implications and the timing of 21, which I think is a kind of an interesting thing ultimately, because when it came out, there was no World Series of Poker. Moneyball had just been breaking into the mainstream. The concept of like, professional gamblers were largely shunned still. Do you ever think about the cultural impact that that book may have had? Yeah, I mean, I do all the time. I remember when, you know, I was first hanging out with you and the idea of the book came about and I, I gave the proposal to my agent and his first comment was, yeah, nobody cares about Vegas. Nobody cares about cards because this was right before Chris Moneymaker won the World Series. Vegas wasn't even on the map. I mean, nobody was really talking about Vegas, uh, it had gone through periods where it was a big deal. But right when this book came out, it was in a real lull period. And the whole that whole narrative nonfiction genre, to the degree that it exists today, didn't really exist back then. So doing a nonfiction book this way about this topic, I mean, it was a, a small book deal. It was supposed to be a printing of 12,000 copies um, and it exploded. And I think it did 
I don't know if you could blame it on the book, but it's certainly the popularity of Vegas, the popularity of cards, and then you move into sort of DraftKings and all of these things. That all came, I believe, from that story. I mean, obviously, I'm, I have a bias, but I think that that story led to, you know, the mainstreaming of of um, of gambling to some degree and eventually what, you know, became everything else. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I would say from my perspective that it led to it, but I think it's interesting because it was ultimately like the first mainstream example of some of these things. Right. And so to say that it didn't have some sort of impact on that, I think it probably is is disingenuous, right? It it was in it was in the the it's kind of like uh the first time you learn that you can just start a company and a company can become a billion dollar business, like you think like, oh, I might want to start a company. And then the, right. the next time you see like smart kids using math and data to beat a system, you think, oh, maybe I could, I could do that also. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I know that that book was in tons of college application essays to MIT for years later. I mean, it was, you know, I, I've talked to admissions people there and they said just for a period, every single college essay had to do with that book. <laughs> so, I mean, I really do think it's sort of a generation of kids definitely grew up, you know, wanting to do that, or at least thinking in that way. Yeah. You, you describe your style as narrative nonfiction. Can you go into a little more detail about that and, and sure. sort of the yeah, process I mean, and, so and how you balance? I, I was like... not a journalist. Yeah, I, I was never, I never intended to be a journalist. I didn't know anything about nonfiction. I was writing fiction when I met Jeff and his friends and, and realized that this was an incredible story. And so I wrote a true story um, in the style of a thriller. So, you know, it's a, it's a, I, I interviewed the subjects. I spent as much time I can with them. I, get all the information I can. In the later books, there was a lot of legal documents and, and stuff like that. So you get tons of research. But then when I sit down to write it, I try and be as cinematic as possible. I try and write it as a, as something that you would see on the screen um, every time. And I usually sell, almost all of my books have been sold as a movie before I've sold the book. And before I've even written a word of the book, I've sold a movie. Um, so I know that's that's the goal. The book is sort of a platform for something that ends up on the screen. So my nonfiction is very different than a lot of journalists because I'm more interested in making the story exciting and accessible to my readers or viewers. And uh, and so I, I play with things, you know, I'm, I'm willing to recreate dialogue. I'm willing to use composite characters. I'm usually, you know, attempting to make the scene as impactful as I believe it is um, based on the information that I have. And so, you know, I lay it all out. I'm very open in the beginning of the book. Um, this is how I write my books and it's not for everybody. There are certain critics that are always going to say, you know, what I'm doing is not journalism. And I fully agree. It's not journalism. What I'm doing is telling a true story in a dramatic fashion. So would you say it's more based on a true story then? If you have, I mean, compo if you have composite kind of, characters, and, I mean, I don't, I don't know that there's a need dialogue. to define it. You know, okay. I think if you were looking at the nonfiction books that are out there, you'll see some are all the way on the level of an encyclopedia, and you'll see some that are more satire. What is satire? What is, um, you know, there are various forms of nonfiction. So if I just define it as narrative nonfiction, but even in that, there's a there's a spectrum of what counts as narrative nonfiction. I don't think it matters so much anymore. I mean, there was a period. 20 years ago where it might have mattered more but where we are today i think uh people are savvy enough to understand that that nothing is true <laughs> i mean there's no such thing as real nonfiction anymore everything is biased it's impossible I, to write a purely well, objective story uh, um so in in the past few days i mean 
we've seen Michael Lewis's reputation take a, a pretty potentially catastrophic hit for two reasons. First, his comments about Michael Orr in the two ways where he basically insinuated that that Michael Orr is violent and aggressive because of um, getting hit in the head too many times playing football. And that's kind of why he's suing the two E's. And so it was a defense of the two E's. And second is the interview surrounding the release of his book about Sam Bakeman freed going infinite, which reportedly reads more as a defense of SBF than anything else. And, and his interviews certainly were more of a defense of SBF. So in light of that, is it, is it possible to get too close to your subjects and take them at their word? Um, Cause you're only really, getting right. one side of the story and, and, and this is a great, an great, example yeah. and like an example of some of the criticism um, with um, the accidental billionaires was that you never interviewed Mark Zuckerberg. So you were getting the story just from one perspective. So, yeah. I mean, you got, well, and bring down the house. I don't know who you did or didn't interview. I know you did interview Jeff, but um, so how do you, yeah. Comments. So it's a great question. <laughs> First of all, there's a, there's a lot of ways to answer this question. Let me, First of all, say that um, I wanted to write an FTX story. When the whole story broke, I was like, oh, this is great. I know these people. I have SBS phone number. I could write this story. Um, and I called my agent, who also happens to be Michael Lewis's agent and Walter Isaacson's agent. So I called him up and I go, I, I think I might want to do this FTX story. It's a huge story. And my agent was just silent. And I was like, ah, oh, shit, Michael's doing it, isn't he? <laughs> and he said, you know, Michael's been embedded with them for like, two years or whatever. He's been hanging out with them. He was writing this glowing book about FTX being the next great thing. And now he's obviously switching gears now that SBF is, is in trouble. And so the, the, the first answer to your question is absolutely you fall in love with your main characters, especially if you've been given that level of access. When we can look at Walter Isaacson and Elon, um, you give someone two years or a year with the main character and they're going to fall in love with the main character. I'm, I'm, I'm in love with all of my characters. I love Jeff. Um, I think it's uh, when you're given access, when you're given a story, you absolutely have a hard time looking badly at the character who's opened this all up to you. On the other hand, you know, if you're telling the true story and something like SBF happens, you have to be able to switch gears and suddenly say, how much of this was wool being pulled over my eyes? How much of this was fraud? How much is this or that? Now, I haven't read the book yet, so I can't tell you what it is that Michael did with this book. I think Michael's a phenomenal writer and really probably the best we have. Um, but um, but yes, I've always maintained, and I this is why I'm not a journalist, the worst person you can get a story from is the main character in the story. That's the least objective take on the story. If you spend a year with SBF or a year with Elon or a year with whoever, they're selling you on their story for that year and you're telling their story. Now that's fine and you can do a biography and tell their story, but that is nowhere near gonna be the real story. Um, if I had spent a year with Zuckerberg, The Social Network would have been a horrible movie and it would have simply been, oh, I had a genius idea and I created Facebook. And who are these Winklevoss? I don't know. Who is this Who is this Eduardo go? I don't know. You know, it would have been total bullshit. So the reality is the main character is the last person you should talk to and the person you should least believe. <laughs> and I think that that's not how biographies are written. And so, listen, I, I reach out and I try and get as much access as I can. I spent six months going back and forth with Zuckerberg. I sent him questions. I sent him emails. We went back and forth. In the end, he decided he didn't want to talk to me because I was talking to the Winklevi, because I was talking to Eduardo. I was talking to Sean Parker. I was talking to all these other people, and he couldn't control the narrative. SBF you know, handed Michael the keys to the kingdom. And, and Michael came out of it with a story about SBF. And, and it's not surprising. 
Um, but I don't know what else is in the book. So, uh, you know, you have to remember also when an author's doing a book tour, they're trying to get the most attention they possibly can. That's the goal of a book tour because nobody reads books anymore. So for, for Michael to sell a million copies of this book, the best thing he can do is go out there and piss everybody off. Um, and that's what he's doing. So I don't know what's in the book. I only know what he said so far. Uh, on the blind side story, I'm not, I, I'm not really, I don't know the story as much as you guys probably do because I don't follow sports as carefully. Again, it seems like, you know, that he had some interest in, in, in telling the story a certain way. And, and when it starts to look like something different, you know, he's just. He's but just I don't, I, like, to be fair, I don't think any of us know what that really looks like in terms of like the claims that are happening, because, you know, one of the claims that Michael Orr is saying is that he was like cheated out of millions of dollars for a movie. And I think you and I both know that for people like Michael and myself and for you, even there's not millions of dollars from a movie <laughs> no, that the, the millions of dollars don't go to us. They go to the actors, they go to the right. studio, even to the point where if a movie does as well as 21 did, making $150 million in the box office off a $35 million budget, somehow it came back to us as it lost money, right? right. So it's, it's that's a reality that probably, people, and, and, and again, like, I think that the challenge that I have with commenting on this Michael situation, obviously is a couple of things. One is, is uh, I, I know him and I'm friends with him, but we just don't know all the details on the, certainly on the, the, the blindside piece. And then, you know, I think that the point that you're making, Ben, which is this idea of, you know, like the Zuckerberg thing is interesting. And if you go back to the 21 question, right, people always ask a little bit about, you know, why weren't certain people's stories told more accurately? And the reality is that like a lot of people didn't want to talk to us. We were trying to include everyone in this. We weren't excluding anyone right. in that process. And a lot of it was because we were like two dipshits sitting on a couch in the south in the end of, house, of, right. of, of Boston, like had no idea that it would ever amount to anything. Like if three people read the book, we would have been amazed. Right. It's part of the reason that you don't get every, that not everybody wanted to talk to you all is the fact that the writer, in this case, Ben is already close to one of the characters and, and it feels like, like, yeah, that's what you're saying. Or, or right, they feel like they're, it, the story is already kind of going a certain way and, and, and your mind is already made up. I mean, first impressions do matter. And I mean, as I mean, you said, it, access does matter. I, I, I think maybe, Rufus, I think that's fair. But I also think in this case, people were just much more dismissive of what we were doing mm -hmm. because like it was like, you know, Ben wasn't Ben wasn't Ben at that time. Ben Ben had written, you know, he was like, had business school applications people. out and was contemplating right. not being a writer anymore. He's, he his you know, his, 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 he had written an X-Files book, you know, the <laughs> X-Files was a television <laughs> show and he created an adaptive book around this, you know, like there was a different, it was a different world. And, you know, we didn't think it would amount to any of this. I, I, I think that's a fair point, but I also feel like there is this aspect, like people all of a sudden care about something a lot more when it's successful than they do when it's not successful or when it's just not worth their time. Well, yeah. I mean, in the case of the MIT Blackjack team, though, I think a lot of people had an interest in not making the story public because it's a sort of a secretive team. Well, I don't know. I don't know if it was that secret of a team, to be honest. Like, you have to understand the MIT Blackjack team was a widely known thing about at MIT. It was not it was not nearly as secretive as you. I'm just telling you. Rufus, OK, like, I mean, honestly, maybe. Like it's but, like what but, what if I was I was not in a secret society at Yale, but let's say I was in Skull and Bones or something and wrote a book about everything that happened in it. But that's like, not that's... what the MIT Black. I mean, 
did I betray trust in talking about this and creating a story about it? It was so mainstream at that point. And like so many of the edges that we had were gone. And so, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting question. Like ultimately, like if Ben and I are able to talk about or talk about like, oh, we had all this positive cultural impact. We should also probably talk about the negative cultural impact we had, right? And and own that. And it's like, did we make it harder for people to count cards um, and do call-ins and things like that? Probably, but a lot of those edges were gone. And like the fact that there are a lot of people like Kyle Bodie from our last podcast that say that our story actually motivated him to become an advantage player and to look for edges and things like that. You know, I again, I would say I would like to think that the actual like net utility for society was positive for the book being written, but it seems like you're skeptical of that. Well, I'm just saying, I, I guess what I'm questioning is that, I mean, we're hearing- You and I your, would, you and I would not know your, each other no, if that course. book wasn't written. But we're hearing, so. we're hearing your perspective on things, right? And, and you're saying that the edges was gone, were gone, it was mostly mainstream, but I think some other people might've disagreed. And I mean, there's we, probably a handful of people who were affected in that you couldn't get away with the MIT system to the degree that you got away with it. However, the technology was changing, the way the casinos were working was changing. So all of those advantages were probably going away a little bit. But I totally agree that that book inspired so many people to learn how to play blackjack. I mean, well beyond that handful of people that couldn't necessarily have that advantage anymore. Um, so the net positive would be good, but perhaps some of the people didn't want to talk because they felt like you were exposing secrets. But, you know, I don't know. It, it's a it's a good question. Secrets and, and their story. But I mean, Jeff, this kind of makes me think about um, like, for example, like the teaser tool at Unabated, which people criticize. No, it's, it's, right? it's, 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 it's the same thing. Like you and I had this conversation at the time, right? It's like you do destroy edges. You do like when you make something mainstream and, and that's the reality of something you got to own. I didn't initially mean to talk about destroying edges in blackjack. I just meant to talk about essentially no, no, and I don't telling I don't a story that a that is telling a story that you're a part of, but other a lot of other people are a part of, and if they don't right. want that story told, well, maybe. I will say to to the truth of what Jeff's saying is that um, you know any one of the MIT team might have been able to tell me a story, um, and the book would have probably looked very different. But Jeff's ability to tell a story made that book in an enormous way. And I don't think, and I'm just thinking of specific people on the team, had they, you know, had, had Matt Lau come to me, it wouldn't have been a great story, right? It just, I mean, I love Matt, nothing negative, but it's just, there's there are people who can tell the story of what they're inside of and other people who just can't for whatever reason. And so it's unfortunate that everyone doesn't want to talk to you, but you really need someone who is able to communicate a good, exciting story to you as an author to make it work for sure. When, when you reflect back on your career and some, some of the things that you've done, are there any regrets that you have in terms of the way you've told stories or, or things that you would look back on and be like, God, I wish I had done this differently or talked to this person. I mean, I, I, I know you well enough to know that you don't take yourself seriously enough that you stay up at night worrying about these things, but there must be something that you look back on and, and you're like, God, I wish I had just done this a teeny bit differently and it would have made a better um, no, book. I, mean, or... I, I would say not in terms of the books. I'm pretty, I feel like I'm pretty honest and open with the people that I'm writing about for, for the most part. Um, I, I really try and, and say, this is the story I'm writing and I'm not trying to get anybody. I'm not trying to out anybody. Um, you should talk to me, talk to me. And then people don't want to talk to me. And, you know, there's always going to be people who don't feel like they're portrayed the way they want to be portrayed in the story. Um, but no, it doesn't, 
you know, I, I try to be very careful in not being inauthentic or dishonest in a way that could harm anybody. Um, so no, uh, I mean, there's always concerns when you have a book come out and you're like, oh, this person's not going to like this, you know? I mean, Ken Griffin obviously doesn't like what we did with the GameStop story and Gabe Plotkin and Steve Cohen and people like that who are scary people to some degree. So you think about that sometimes. And uh, and my next book is about, you know, Twitter and Elon and, and it's called Breaking Twitter. And I mean, that's going to be a book that is, is going to be really fiery when that comes out. But you, I'm, you know me, I'm not I'm not that I'm not that person who stays up all night going, oh, maybe I should have done this or maybe I should have done that. I don't have regrets in that respect. Um, I wish some of my books had been more successful. <laughs> like sometimes I write a book and I think this is going to be this massive home run. And for whatever reason, it's not. Um, and I can't control those aspects of it. But certainly for the stories like 21 and, and the social network, um, I'm super happy with everything in those books and everything in those movies. There's not a single thing and, and dumb money. There's not a single thing in any of those projects that I would do even slightly differently. Well, I was going to ask, how have you grown as an author since bringing down the house? Oh, a lot. I mean, well, bringing down the house, I mean, a, a lot of what I am as an author comes from how I wrote that book. And I try and sort of make those same moves every time. Um, and I'm just trying to perfect what happened there. I wrote it very quickly. It was an incredibly fast writing process. I didn't sort of worry about what's journalism and what's not journalism. Um, I honed this sort of style. And, and so it all kind of started from there. Now I'm I'm somewhat of a, a machine in how I do my books. It's basically, you know, I see a story, I write a 10 page proposal, I, I get a movie deal, I get a book deal, I write an outline, I write the books in, in two months, and then I am done. So now it's almost like I can do a book every three months. Um, and this process is really down to a science. So um, I mean, it's been 25 books now. So Yes, I, I think I've grown in my abilities as a writer, um, but everything goes back to how I wrote that book and um, the fun of sort of, of of being part of that story to write it. I mean, I've changed in terms of my career. Everything has changed dramatically. I mean, it's it's a massive business now. I would say Hollywood and that side of the business is, a, is, is as big, if not a bigger part of my. But the whole idea of a book as a platform for a movie um, came about as 21 got made. And you have to remember 21 took, five years from when the book came out in 2002, the movie wasn't until 2007. So it was just a book until a certain point. And then kind of my Hollywood career took off after 2007. But, you know, one of the reasons that it did so well as a book, or at least you got the PR that you did was because someone we don't talk about anymore <laughs> bought the rights to it immediately. <laughs> and it, it was like known that it was going to probably become a movie at some point. Right. Isn't it so, crazy that back then the, the name Kevin Spacey was such a big positive thing. And now the yeah. name Kevin Spacey is such a big negative thing, but yeah, I mean, Kevin being involved was enormous for, but that book, that book succeeded just, I really think on the one line, six MIT kids took Vegas for millions. It was the perfect sentence, you know, and you always need that elevator pitch. And that sentence was on every news report. It was like, oh, and here's six MIT kids who took Vegas for a million. People just kept saying that over and over again. And it was kind of, I'm always looking for that perfect sentence in every book I write since. It's like, where is that one perfect sentence that sells the whole story? And that, I think that sentence had more to do with it than Kevin or with anything else. Rufus, you have something? Looks like you I was like, and, and then Jeff got that scholarship and, and went to med school and the rest is and history. And he went to right? med school and he was, he was white. 
and and it was all yeah. <laughs> it was a, I, mean, I mean you know that's yeah. my perfect sentence for every speech I do is like what do you think true Hollywood magic is? And it's how you turn an average looking Asian American male into a dashing British white guy, which is what they did in the movie 21. It, it makes the crowd open up with, with cheers. Not anymore. Right now it would go the other direction. Um, <laughs> now Hollywood has made a, a, a 180 turn from how they used to make movies. And well, so, and that's, that's actually like part of the story. I think the follow on story from 21, which is just this idea of like how, you know, things have changed since then in terms of, you know, like I, I talk to John Chu all the time about this, you know, just the idea, like, because, you know, Crazy Rich Asians was such an important movie yeah. in in my mind. And, you know, when I went to go see the, so they had a premiere in, in San Francisco of it, it gave me like this, this sense of pride because like seeing these Asian, you know, characters, it's it's interesting because like people give me criticism about, supporting the film and knowing that it was whitewashed but again like for me the idea was was i had had very little say in who played me and very little opportunity to actually interject and so the only way that i could get the, the notoriety out there that this was an asian american story was to be complicit and part of that story yeah i mean it's just, it's a different world i would love them to remake 21 if you talk to john about that there's been lots of talk about that now and again i mean today that movie would have been made with with a mostly Asian cast, I believe, but um, but back then it wasn't it wasn't even the studio didn't even think about that. It wasn't even. No, I think John would, would love to remake Twenty One. I mean, we've we've I talked about great. it, so let's we got to we got to talk to the studio then too, right? Sony and Amy Pascal and get it going again. <laughs> will the, yeah, will the remake be called Twenty Two? Twenty Two. It could be Twenty Two. It could just be. I don't know, but it would be really cool um, and, and to see it done, redone in an authentic way. But um, yeah, Hollywood's in a different place and, and, and a lot of the changes are good and, and um, movies are made differently today, um, certainly in that aspect, for sure. So you, you just said something interesting, which was like the remake of the movie in an authentic way. In your mind, what would make what would be something besides the, the race of the characters that would make it more authentic? Well, I mean, I think one of the things we used to talk about is we're not making rounders. You know, there's the, there's a big difference between 21 and rounders. And, and uh, rounders was a movie made for the poker community um, and uh, and and never had a, a sort of an urge to to make the, a mainstream, you know, movie that you'd watch on the flight to Vegas. And I think 21 was made much more, you know, aimed at 21 year olds who've never heard of blackjack right um so i do think that there there could be an interesting way to make the movie a little bit more roundersy it wouldn't do the big numbers i don't think that 21 did but i think it would be an interesting way to, to go yeah i don't know um but i don't i don't I, look i love 21 i love i love the fact that everybody was watching it you know on their way to vegas and 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 it had that incredible appeal so i'm happy with sort of however it came out but I think you could do it a little bit more uh, inside baseball. Final question, obviously. Uh, tell us a little bit about Dumb Money and tell yeah. us about, yeah, what the why people should go see this movie. I mean, I think- And read, and read the book. Yeah. The book's so called the something book, different, right? The book was called The Antisocial Network originally, um, but there's a new paperback out called Dumb Money because it has the movie tie-in and everything. And um, it's the story of sort of the- Roaring Kitty of the guy in his basement who fell in love with GameStop and and started talking about it on YouTube and suddenly it caught fire on Reddit and it became a battle between retail traders and 
evil hedge funds, and it was all about the corruption at the core of uh, the American economy and and Ken Griffin and payment for order flow and Robin Hood and all of that stuff. But it's a comedy. Seth Rogen, Pete Davidson, um, Sebastian Stan, Vincent D'Onofrio, a whole bunch of other great actors. Um, and it's out in theaters now. Um, and uh, I love it. I, I just think it's a really well done movie um, and funny. And um, yeah, it's it's uh, I think it's it's one of the great sort of finance movies that's that'll be on all those lists for a long time. But um, it's an interesting time. We don't have our actors. So unfortunately, we've kind of had to our actors were unable to promote it. Um, so it's been a tricky promotional time, you, you know, <laughs> over the last couple of weeks. Have they made you a big piece of the PR then? Uh, yeah, unfortunately, people are hearing from the author a lot, <laughs> which isn't something you normally do. Um, so I've been going around doing lots of Q&As, lots of television and screenings and um, got to go to the Toronto Film Festival and do the whole red carpet. But we had no actors there. It's it's an odd time in Hollywood to launch a movie. And because we're a cast, you know, a very great cast, we're probably the most affected of any movie out there. Um, it's been a blast. And I, I just think this movie is great. And I hope it gets some Oscar noms because I think the the um, the screenplay is fantastic and the director is amazing. And um, I don't know, it's been a it's been a whirlwind last three weeks. I've been just on tour with the movie, which is really, really, you know what that's like. It can be pretty insane. But um, yeah, it's great. I hope people go see it. If you were involved in GameStop or were wondering what the hell was going on with that, I think this is a... This will tell you all it is. Yeah. Ah, it's got my neighbor in it too. Who is your I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say which actor. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. No, but it's great. I mean it's I really love it. And it's um it's it can remind you a little bit of the big short, I think. It's kind of a mix of the big short and a little bit of the social network. Um, but it is rated R, um, so it's kind of a hard hitting uh comedy and it does not pull any punches. Um so there's definitely people on Wall Street who are not thrilled with it. All right, Ben, thanks for joining us. Um, yeah. Excited to finally have you on. We'll probably have to have you on again when the Twitter book comes out because obviously I'll have a lot of- You'll have a lot to also. say. Look, I can't wait for you to read it. I got to send you a copy of it. It's called Breaking Twitter and it's- out Yeah, there. send me, is it, a, do you have a copy already? I do have a copy. Um, it's pretty controversial. Uh, it's basically the antidote to Walter Isaacson's Elon book. It's the just as you were asking me for about falling in love with your main character. I feel that Walter wrote the book that Elon wanted written. Um, and this is going to be the book that Elon doesn't want you to read. Um, and it's uh, going to be pretty controversial. So it's out. Do you, do you worry about Elon showing up at your house and trying to challenge you to a cage fight? <laughs> well, I don't I would have I'd call Zuckerberg and have him come. I mean, Zuckerberg and Elon will both hate me. So maybe they can they can agree on something. Both come beat me up. Um, but no, I'm not, I'm not worried. I think that it's a very fair telling of the story and there are things in it Elon will like and things Elon will not like. Um, but on, in general, I think it's a book that half the people who read it will hate and half the people who read it will like. So it'll be- very Which is great if you're selling books, right? I mean, it's always, you know, it's always a battle to sell books, but I think, uh, I think it's a really wild story um, that I think there's a lot uh, to tell in it. And, and I write it the way I write it. So it's a thriller that takes place in those six weeks when he walks through the front door um and uh yeah it's out november 7th all right awesome ben thank you for joining us and uh like i said we'll try to get you on probably again when the twitter book comes out awesome man i miss you jeff you're the best and thank you guys uh had a great conversation best of luck to michael too <laughs> right. so that was our interview with ben mesrick 
And um, I'm sure that's going to make a lot of people in the internet internets happy to have us talk to them. Like Rufus, you you have controversial for sure. Were you, were you holding back something there in terms of wanting to, to go after Ben and his, his narrative nonfiction style? No, I mean, I, I asked the questions I wanted to ask and I got, you did a good job. Those were interesting questions. They were good. Thanks. I mean, I, I do think that, you know, he's telling, he's not always telling a full story. He's telling one side of a story or the side that, that but he's not, I mean, I think, I think he what said ben he's not was, a journalist, right. But, but right. he did say these are true stories, but, but it's, it's a true story. You know, he said, what is truth? Right. So it's, it's literally the true, the truth or, well, um, how about this, right? Is this, but is this, is a, this an, is this a, is this an example of deterministic versus probabilistic thinking? Well, I think we, that's a good point, Jeff, but, I think he makes the story deterministic, but in reality, the story is deterministic. It's just is it his though? determinism. Well, yes, something happened. That's deterministic. Like, but if you like won the hand of blackjack, it was you won the hand of blackjack. The story is you won the hand of blackjack. Okay, so Rufus, there are there are pieces of the story that are deterministic. The story itself is not deterministic because it has so? a lot of it has a lot of layers in terms of like. What, you know, if you went back in history and you recorded something and you had the exact way that things went down, that's 100% deterministic. But if you go back and you have people retelling stories that didn't, that there is no official record of, I don't know if that's deterministic because it's it's so sort of like- It's probabilistic? So you're I saying- don't know. I mean, this is like what he was saying version, about- One version of events actually happened. I think, can we agree on that? And and you're saying if you don't know the version of events that happened, it's not deterministic. But that's is that your point? I think there's no way to know definitively what happened unless you recorded it at the time. And this is like kind of like a weird philosophical thing. I feel like Barry Horse now. But you know what? Even in the in this in this world where an action happens, the interpretation of that action, like did I not show up to your house because I don't like you or did I forget something or did I completely black out or am I not wanting to do the podcast with you? Like what, what is the interpretation? My, my point of though is there is a source of truth at the time. Well, like you, I, I you think did it I th- for a certain reason or maybe for no reason at all that you showed up at my house. Right. But if, even if, even if you and I like retell that story and we both have what we consider to be a hundred percent recollection of what happened, our interpretation of that story might be different. And to me, and again, like I'm not smart enough to understand if that really is deterministic versus probabilistic, but the idea that like, I think a fair question that becomes, you know, again, like if you go back to the Kyle Bodie interview, which I think was, was fascinating, this idea that we all seek, you know, deterministic, we seek our outcomes to be, you know, binary, this happened or this didn't happen or, and I think what Ben would say rightly or wrongly is, you know, in this recollection of things, there are a lot of different views on really what happened. And he's creating the, the view that is the most entertaining or the view that like, he would never tell you he's trying to create the view that's the most accurate. And he would actually probably say like, I don't even know what accurate means in this case, like, which is, is, is a, it's a BS. It's a little bit of a BS like defense, but I do think there is a, there is an, uh, like one of the things I think I've learned in my life personally, and, you know, like 
as, as you advance in your professional career, Rufus, I'm sure that you will find this and you will face this. And it's an important thing to learn is that what you say to someone, especially in a professional setting, there's a lot of disconnect between what you meant to say, what you said and how someone interpreted it. Right. Like you may say something that is totally innocuous to you, but someone may hear it and feel very threatened by it or think that there was hidden meaning to that. And in, in your world, ultimately, like, because you're very, very smart, people will interpret things that you say differently than someone who's not very smart. But even like, I mean, like my dad said something to my sister when she was younger, like, I think he was frustrated with work. He said, never become an architect. And my sister like took it as, Oh, don't become an architect. And and it wasn't until well, that's like pretty straightforward that, as a message. <laughs> right. But, but they, she didn't understand that it wasn't actually meant in seriousness. Like she was like, Oh, I guess he doesn't want me to become an architect. So yeah, yeah. I guess, but, but I want to say the whole, deter- I think the whole determinism thing you're saying is kind of bullshit. I mean, people we we know that people like narratives and like explanations for things that's that's what that's what a story is people like stories now sometimes stories are more entertaining if if you can set the scene well and and i think that's something that michael lewis for example is like like i don't know anybody better than him at that he sets the scene really well and tells a really good story now the question is does he have the responsibility to tell the most accurate story he can is it okay if it's just in the spirit of the way things happen but adding flavor to it i mean both michael lewis and ben mesrick i mean i think that's kind of something that some people take issue with right like how 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 do we know whether this is just essentially filling in some details that are actually in the spirit of accuracy but may not have happened exactly like that but make the story better or or they're not well, in the in the Michael Lewis case, okay, again, like this is tre- treading lightly for me at least. Was there ever a point before this SBF stuff that you had issues, or you thought like there was any of this, you know, misleading? I, I didn't or personally, but I I I don't think I thought very critically about it, to be quite honest. And when you go back, I mean, um, I was I was on the Twitter machine yesterday, and I saw a tweet from Taleb that was you know years old basically saying something about lewis that actually ended up being correct um, what did he say it, oh, i gotta find it but i mean taleb is a piece he of work out, so... he, he called sorry taleb is a piece of work but we, we know that we know who taleb is <laughs> i mean taleb is definitely selling stuff too right so it's not he's taleb not trying basically to be the arbiter said something of about how he basically said, I mean, so he says now, like the tragedy of the good writer, Michael Lewis never had any idea how finance worked, yet managed for 34 years to fool non-finance people into believing that he knew what he was talking about. The good news is that one gets caught eventually, but 34 years is far too long. And I saw something referencing him talking about this well before this, like years ago, saying this is not how this works. Yeah. Okay, here we go. I found it. It's In short, Michael Lewis, is. A, this is from 2021. Michael Lewis is a novelist faking to do reporting. He follows the most lurid narrative without fact-checking in subject he knows nothing about. Lewis never contacted Higerenzer to get his side of the story. When I asked him why, he responded, aren't you on Kay's side? Okay. So so my point is you tell a story, like stories are better if you have one person's side of the story and don't have to say, well, you know, because it's more definitive. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's a, it's a cohesive narrative. If it's, if it's, 
a full picture and, and things are not always, don't always have explanations that are. No, I mean, I have an, I, I think, idea, I have an I, idea I, in here somewhere, Jeff. I'm trying no, to, I, I, I think it's a fascinating conversation and, you know, obviously I don't know if either of us are the definitive people to have this conversation, but at, at, at some level, the idea versus of what real journalism is versus storytelling and then what bar you hold people to, like I've never held, and obviously like Ben and I worked together at the beginning of his career when he really embarked into this. So I've always kind of known what Ben was as a writer and he's a storyteller. He wants to create a story that is interesting and he wants to base it on real life accounts. Now, I think the the issue that you were getting into with him is very much about semantics in his mind. It may not be semantics to you. You would probably have no issue with based on a true story. And he would tell you this is a true story, which is really like what you were trying to get to. And he was basically like kind of not engaging in that. And he's not going to engage in something like that because to him, that's just semantics. And ultimately his writing style is something he owns. I mean, I don't think he does not call himself a journalist. And, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, I thought his story about like, you know, being too close to subjects, like the main character is, is it was an interesting one. Like it was an interesting point to make anyways. So anything else on this? We've got a, we've got a long time on a subject nope. that neither no of us are authorities no more. on. All right. You want to give a pick of the week? Yeah, let's do that. I lost last week. I had Miami. And what's funny is when I made that pick early in the week, I was like, and then I, I saw our numbers. I had, didn't have our numbers yet. And I was like, oh, we, we like, we kind of like Buffalo. And I was like, oh, this sucks. And then I was like thinking about it. I'm like, yeah, that, that, that totally makes sense that we would like Buffalo. Like everyone's just completely overreacting to the 70 burger that Miami put on Denver where there was but, so but many Buffalo expensive. also won like 38 nothing or something too. So both teams are coming out big blowouts. But Miami's was more um, public. I don't know. Epic is that what you said? Public, public, yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember looking at ESPN FPI's power ratings, and they literally went from Miami, like they they moved them up like four, five or six points, all the way up to like a ten. I don't know what's going on with it with their ratings right now because literally after Buffalo Miami, like they moved those numbers, I think like six plus points. So basically, they're saying that what they know now, like the the line would be six points different than it would be last week, the Buffalo Miami game, which seems kind of like way too much in my opinion but okay okay picks let me see picks, we, I, picks, I actually picks. did bet a little bit of nfl this week so Ooh, be interested to yeah. see what you like yes it will and i actually like some favorites this week believe it or not really i like the buffalo bills playing at home in london um against the jacksonville jaguars minus five and a half i know that they the jags are just going to be staying in london but i mean that means they have to eat british food for a whole week so that's kind of a disadvantage. How much shepherd's pie could you really eat? Exactly. They were trying to figure out, they were trying to quantify the value of that on, I think, uh, like Rob Pizzola on, on his podcast. It's a small data problem, right? Very small. But it's, what is it, a five-hour flight? Mm-hmm. I don't know. You probably, yeah, hopefully. You, From well, Buffalo? From Buffalo, they have hopefully they're flying private and have a team charter because you don't you don't think <laughs> I mean, they're, of course they're, you they don't are, think they're but, you don't think they're uh, doing a transfer in Newark. Well, I don't know if is there a long enough runway in Buffalo for a big plane. I'm sure there is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you see this in college teams go like Hawaii has to go play teams like in the mainland. That's a 
you know, if they're flying to like Wyoming, that's a pretty long flight, probably about five hours. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you have cross country flights, you have Seattle playing against new England and things like that. And, and if they have two East coast games in a row, they're just staying there. And so I, I mean, I the other think... thing is like time, time zone difference, right. Acclimating to time zone difference. And it's only, that's only what that's five time hours. Is relative. So, so that's yeah. Time is always relative. Uh, what else? So is that, is that your play Buffalo minus five and a half? It is. I'm going to go with, you know, everyone's like so in love with Houston now and CJ Stroud. Have you seen the CJ Stroud's the next coming of, I'm going to go with the Niners minus three and a half. Okay. They're not playing Houston. Just so you know. Yeah. I was actually going to talk about, I was actually going to talk about Atlanta plus two, which I kind of like also. So Atlanta's plus two. Now they were minus two before. They still are minus two. They are still minus two. So okay. My bad. It's okay. Can't okay. Read. So you, I can't read. I can't read. I think I lost because I think I took New England. I took, I took the Patriots last week. And yeah. I like the Patriots Jeff, last week. I, I was on a flight. I, there was, uh, I was on Delta. I had live TV. So I could watch. I watched most of the Washington uh, Philadelphia game. That's what, and then you I, decided I, to watch a rom com instead. I literally watched a rom com that had a 15% on Rotten Tomatoes over watching the Dallas New England game. I think it was called something borrowed. Hmm. Was it good? I, I enjoyed it much more than I would have enjoyed watching the Dallas New England game. Did it make you want to fall? Like I, I watched like parts of the first quarter of Dallas New England and it wasn't even a blowout yet then, but I was like, this just is not fun. Hmm. It was just such a boring game to watch. All right. Well, I think that's our podcast, Rufus. Okay. Do you have anything else to say? Go Orioles. Go Orioles. All right. We'll talk to you guys all again next week. So there's some interesting, you know, parallels here between what you do in sports betting. And as a final question, unless Rufus, you have something else, would love to explore just some of the general philosophies slash advice that you would give to our seven listeners that are interested in sports betting, et cetera, because ultimately there are a lot of parallels and there, there's just simple ways to think. So Maybe what are three pieces of advice that you would give to any aspiring sports better that's trying to use data and modeling and statistics to beat the sports market? Ooh, that's a good one. So I would say. Well, so I, I think, I think you actually already, you've already done it pretty well in this interview. The first thing that I would start, and I'll give you a, a kickstart is around um, like betting things that, you know, right? Like finding something that you really know and that you know well okay. and like leveraging that as your starting point. So making sure that you have good data from there, et cetera. And then kind of mm-hmm. like going after that, that that's something that I think you, you were very clear on that, mm-hmm. that you thought that was a, a piece. Sure. Yeah. So I would say advice number one, stay focused. Like you can't be good at everything. So find an area which which you can be passionate about just because you like the sport or you like the type of the model and uh, try to become an expert in that area and then uh, number two I would say try to stay in the game uh, you know obviously bet in a way that allows you to come back tomorrow there's almost always a tomorrow uh, and then uh, number three even though my advice number one was to focus, but number three, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of uh, ensembling of models and diversifying 
Um, so if, if you can try to develop multiple models and uh, try to bet uh, with more than just one. Actually, that reminds me of a question that I did want to ask, and we asked this to Blair. The concept of ensemble modeling and then how to use those models and employ those, weighting them, et cetera. Like, do you think about that as an art versus a science or how do you think about the, the, the right process to figure that out? Yep. So, so we do have a scientific process, but the scientific process is not perfect. So we can do two things that are very scientific. We can treat every strategy as an asset and we can calculate daily returns from each strategy and then we can build like a beautiful markowitz portfolio we can like build like a little efficient frontier and then allocate the weights optimally between strategies um the problem with that is especially if your strategies don't have a lot of live history either you end up using backtested returns which as we discussed are usually too good to be true or you end up working with a really small sample. So your correlations are not very stable and the weights that the Markowitz portfolio recommends are probably not very stable. Then you can do a more brute force approach. You can do some kind of a grid search. So if you have like five strategies, you can say, I will allocate my money in 5% or 10% increments. And then you try all the different combinations of the weights and then that gives you an optimal weight. And then you can look at, and then basically what we end up doing, we look at both, we look at the Markowitz weights and we look at the grid search weights. And then we look at the weights that we currently have in production. And then we have a discussion about whether or not we have a good enough reason to change anything. And, and we tend to be pretty cautious because the trade-off is on one hand, you want to be responding quickly so that when a model stops working or when you discover a model never worked in the first place, you want to get rid of it pretty quickly. But on the other hand, it's it's a well-known fact that different models perform well in different regimes. So just because one of your models is not performing well for a few months, it doesn't mean it's not coming back. So then we have to balance, you know, giving the models enough time to come back versus not letting a bad model to drag down the performance. And that's where the art comes in a little bit. Analytically driven media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down. It seems like they don't get it. Puppeteers are put to end just running off a leaded. None of it's organic. It all sounds synthetic. This episode of Beth the Process is brought to you by Hull Tactical. The hosts of this podcast are not investors with HDAA and were not directly compensated for their views. However, HDAA sponsored this podcast. The hosts and sponsors share a conflict of interest because the sponsor paid a one time cash compensation for the content of the podcast and the hosts may be incentivized to endorse or promote HDAA's investment management services.